Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives. With a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless, Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. This is the Black Hall Studios Podcast with Ryan Millsap. Today on the podcast, I've got Mr. Kevin Greiner, CEO of Gas South. Now, you may be asking yourself, what do movies and utilities have in common? Well, in 2020, while we were watching Netflix, Amazon, and Disney+, and consuming more entertainment from our homes than ever before, we were also using more and more resources, electricity, water, and yes, natural gas. With the recent acquisition of Infinite Energy, Griner has more than doubled Gas House revenue from $350 million to over a billion dollars annually. Named one of the Southeast's 100 most influential executives, Kevin Griner not only leads a competitive, growing industry, he also shows amazing leadership in and around the Atlanta community. His favorite show is Mad Men, because I think he might be a little bit of a madman himself. I welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast, Gas South CEO, Kevin Greiner. Today on the podcast, we have Kevin Greiner, who serves as president and CEO of Gas South. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. I'm really happy to be here. Good to see you. So your infinite energy acquisition now takes your revenues above a billion dollars. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It was quite an experience doing a deal of that size during the pandemic where you're doing all of your you know negotiations virtually and everything. But we're really pleased to have closed it. We've got a great team from Infinite down in uh, Gainesville, Florida now working with us at Gas South, and we're really excited to kind of bring these two great companies together. Now, I love deal stories. Tell me a little bit about that deal story. How did it come together? You know, who, who brought it to you? How did you make it happen? What were the difficulties during the pandemic, et cetera? Yeah, well, we've admired the folks at Infinite for a long time, and they've been one of our chief competitors for years. And interestingly, we basically serve customers in most of the same markets. We're both primarily in Georgia and in Florida. And um, Infinite, their business was really originally focused on wholesale, so selling natural gas to utilities and energy marketing and a lot of trading activity. And they kind of moved into what we call the retail business, which is basically serving end-use customers. And they did that over time, end-users like residential customers, commercial, industrial. We really had our origins on the retail side of the business. So Gas South had always been more of a provider to those end-use customers and had moved into wholesale over time. So it was kind of an interesting merging where, you know, we're coming from retail, they're coming from wholesale. Over time, we had sort of met in the middle. And, um, you know, during 2020, we started having some conversations with their owners about what a cool tie-up this would be, uh, the great synergies that we would have in terms of serving customers in similar geographies, the really similar cultural characteristics that both companies had were both quite nimble and agile and have really uh, motivated and engaged employees. And we thought, you know, this really could make a lot of sense. And some of our strengths compensate for their weaknesses and vice versa. So bringing the two companies together, 
was something that had been on our mind for a while. And it just kind of, I think the time was right, you know, and it, it's kind of ironic because the pandemic, you know, there's so much going on and yet there's not much going on in other respects, you know, so we could really focus on, hey, can we put this deal together, try to make it happen without a lot of, you know, other um, things that might distract you otherwise. And we worked hard at it. We had a busy year in 2020, both companies. And now here we are basically, you know, close the deal in December and off we go for 2021. How'd you capitalize it? Did you have to raise more debt? Did you raise more equity? Yeah, we did both. So we're actually owned by an electric cooperative, Cobb EMC. They serve members. They're a not-for-profit electric cooperative. They serve their members up in the Northwest Metro Atlanta area. So Cobb County, Cherokee County, some in Bartow and um, Fulton and Paulding as well. And um, so they contributed some equity to the deal. And then also uh, Gas South has its own credit facility. So it's led by Truist and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. They both stepped up big time. We had Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and uh, Cooperative Finance Corporation were all entities that also participated. So we found the capital was relatively easy to get. You know, we had a good track record, strong financials, and you know, banks are looking to lend to good companies these days. It's hard if you're undercapitalized or you're in certain business segments, certainly. But during the pandemic, they definitely wanted to put their money to work, and we didn't find it overly difficult, thankfully. But you know, we definitely could not have done it without our banks, and we really appreciate their support. The natural gas supply chain, how many pieces fit in that supply chain? So you have the guys who are wildcatting right. on some level. Walk me through like how you get from gas in the ground to gas to the home. Yeah, great question. So it starts with production, and that's where you hear about all the fracking and everything else, the revolutionary techniques to pull gas out of formations that used to be unavailable to us, basically. So the technology advanced tremendously. And we have a lot more natural gas in this country than we did 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, it's probably the same amount. It's just that we're able to get it yeah, now. Fair. Right? Yeah, fair. Uh, Access to, yes. yeah. But, um, Usable. Yeah. But if you look at you know, places like Ohio and Pennsylvania are states that were never thought of as big energy producing regions that are today for both natural gas and oil. Pennsylvania was the original oil find. Yeah, in isn't America. that funny? It is. Yeah, and then it lost, you know, its luster, if you will, and everybody moved to offshore locations and Texas, Texas. and some out west, right? But then, as we got better and smarter about uh, going deeper and extracting more um, natural gas and oil, folks came back to Pennsylvania, where it all began, as you say, and uh, now it was economical to be able to pull that gas out of uh, shale formations that exist all through the state of Pennsylvania and Ohio. So that's where kind of the action begins. And then there are these interstate pipelines where the folks that produce the natural gas and clean it up to pipeline standards, then inject that into interstate pipelines, which really crisscross the entire United States. Mm -hmm. And they basically connect the areas that produce natural gas with the areas that consume it. So those big population centers and industrial centers that we have in the country. We buy from the producers and the energy marketers, and we then arrange for that natural gas to be transported through those interstate pipelines. We don't own those, but we have access to those, and we buy space and capacity on those to ensure that uh, we can get the gas to where it needs to go. Who would be some of your biggest producers, like just by name? So folks like um, Shell, um, BP, uh, ConocoPhillips are all, you know, large suppliers of natural gas commodity to us. 
And then we're working with companies like um, uh, Sonat and Transco. They own the two big interstate pipelines that bring gas to Georgia, for example, and also to North Carolina, where we have large customer base. Where is most of that coming from? Does it come from Pennsylvania? or Yeah, mostly the, you know, Texas. You'll have some coming from Pennsylvania and Ohio, but still I think our greatest production is really coming out of the Texas basins where it then can be transported to the east. And uh, that's usually the most efficient um, flow. But more and more, we are having gas flowing from the Midwest and places like that into our markets also. And then what we do, just continuing on that mm-hmm. kind of supply, um, chain. Mm-hmm. supply chain, is we're really in the business of marketing natural gas. So we are buying it from different suppliers. We are moving it into our regions. We're then ensuring that that natural gas gets into the um, local distribution company system. So that would be like Atlanta Gaslight here in Georgia. Uh, it would be uh, folks like Tico People's Gas down in um, Florida. And so we have to make sure that the gas gets to where it needs to be so that those utilities can operate their systems uh, effectively. And then our customers are basically taking that gas out of those utility systems. So it's sort of like a big bathtub in a way. You know, we're like putting gas in in one location, we're taking it out elsewhere. Our gas is mixed in with lots of other folks who are doing the same type of business that we're in. But um, it all works, you know, and it all balances out and customers get what they need, which is, you know, affordable and reliable natural gas at the end of the day. Well, it's easy for people, I think, to forget that one of the great growth spurts in this nation's history was this discovery of oil and really creating the oil industry. And we were the first country that had oil on scale. And then we were the ones who took the technology that we'd identified and searching for oil and finding oil and pipelining oil and uh, shipping oil all over. And we took that to the Middle East and found oil in the Middle East. And it was the Americans and the British who really developed the whole oil market in the Middle East. And then a lot of that was repatriated. But for a long time, we were the largest producers of oil in the world, the United States. That's right. And and then, you know, we definitely fell off quite a bit. And uh, you know, fracking and um, has really changed that again and has made us a leading producer of both oil and natural gas uh, in the world, which is which I think is, you know, great for our country. Well, it's a huge advantage to all industry because industry just needs energy. Yeah. And it's going to come from somewhere. And we've talked about this kind of wave going on uh, in the United States conversationally about trying to electrify everything. Talk a little bit about uh, the pluses of electric and the electric grid, but then some of the things people may be overlooking sure. relative to kind of how all these things fit together. Yeah. So, you know, the power industry is undergoing fabulous change right now. And, um, you know, it really is impressive how much renewables have come down on the cost curve and been really viable as the you know next source of energy to be developed. Uh, in 2021, believe it or not, 70% of the new capacity that's expected to come online in the United States will be renewable energy. Mostly uh, solar? It's uh, solar and wind are roughly split as mm-hmm. far as their shares there. So and there that's is all a, windmills like we have in California? That's right, yeah. Where are those? Do you know where those are going in across the country? Is it a lot of California windmills? or? Um, actually, the biggest new wind uh, capacity is really going in in Texas and Oklahoma and places like that, uh, Kansas, which have 
extraordinary wind resources. And then, of course, the solar is going in in places that tend to have higher solar intensity, although really solar is being built you know, all over the country, sometimes a beneficiary of incentives and tax credits and that kind of thing, and sometimes just on the basis of its you know, characteristics um, like we have in, in Georgia. So um, you know, there's definitely a real move towards renewables, and we're excited about that. Gas South has actually invested uh, about $17 million in solar energy projects just in the last year, and we are going to continue to invest significant sums to continue to get experience with that type of um, electricity generation. And uh, you know there are tax credits as well that are available to us and to others that get involved with those projects and help to invest in them. And I'm a big proponent of you know electrifying cars. I've been an early adopter of uh, EVs. I've had an EV since 2011. So uh, it's uh, a great technology and I love that. Um, at the same time, the notion that we should cut off use of natural gas um, at this time in our you know country's history, I don't think makes any sense. Uh, basically, if you electrify everything and you stop utilizing natural gas, um, what largely happens is you displace very efficient equipment that generates heat and drying and cooking and uh, manufacturing. Um, you displace that equipment with less efficient electricity-based equipment, and you basically take the direct use of natural gas, which is going into those homes and businesses today, and you displace that with electricity that is largely generated using natural gas, which is a much more inefficient uh, type of um, conversion. So um, while there's definitely great opportunity for continuing to see us move towards renewable energy and to go towards you know no emissions technologies and things like that, I do think that um, you know natural gas continues to have a really important role. And then you see, you know, today we're actually in one of the coldest days of the year, probably in the entire United States, certainly as well in Georgia, but we're experiencing this um, polar vortex in um, Oklahoma and Texas, and it's, you know, sweeping across the Midwest. And natural gas plays such an important role in meeting that intense demand for heat that occurs and to, you know, expect electricity to be able to meet those demands. We just don't have the grid or the infrastructure to be able to do that. So we've got the infrastructure. It's in the ground. It's already being utilized, natural gas infrastructure. And we should continue to you know, rely on that, especially for heat uh, when um, it's needed. I read something just today in Forbes. They said that uh, to electrify everything and to be able to meet these sorts of peak heating needs we'd have to have an electricity grid that is twice what it is today. So imagine the type of investment that we're talking about in terms of twice the generation, twice the transmission, twice the distribution infrastructure to be able to electrify everything and be able to meet the needs of the heating that uh, people and businesses need on you know periods like the one that we're experiencing right now. I don't think that's the best way to go. I think that natural gas should continue to be that bridge fuel, that fuel that can continue to be utilized as we move to, you know, a more renewable and, you know, sustainable energy future. Well, natural gas is 24 hours a day, right? Electric always has that struggle, that nighttime struggle, right? If you're trying to do anything that rel relative to solar, how do you store all that energy? Yeah. That's, you know, that's created during the day for the night. And then you've got battery issues and whatever. So there always needs to be, whether it's coal or um, hydroelectric or get into gas, 
gas doesn't have any of those issues, right? Because gas can flow at any time, any any day. That's right. And, uh, you know, and the infrastructure is there. We've invested in it. It's built. It's safe. It also is very, uh, it's a great hedge against weather events when you think about it, because also, you know, natural gas systems typically don't go down, you know, when you have extreme weather events. I mean, most of the infrastructure is buried. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a great, you know, hedge in um, that sense as well. So I think that, you know, the, the most important thing with energy is it's a, you know, all the above strategy, and it's going to continue to incorporate natural gas, renewables, nuclear energy. You know, we have a large nuclear plant that, of course, um, is being built, Plant Vogel in Georgia. These are all going to be very important components, and things will change over time. I do believe that oil will be displaced by electric cars um, over time. I, I think that the technology that you get with um, an electric vehicle is better than one that utilizes the combustion engine. So we'll see some displacement there, no question. Does it mean that all demand for oil goes away? Probably not, but it will decline over time. You know, we're going to see shifts, but at the end of the day, you know, we're not in, I don't think it's a good idea to, as a country to say, well, we're going to ban this form of energy or this form of energy. It's really better to send price signals. Um, you know, having things like a, a carbon tax makes a lot of sense for us to, you know, favor lower carbon fuels and disfavor the ones that are higher carbon. Uh, natural gas would obviously do pretty well on that benchmark because it's much lower carbon than oil or coal, for example, but it wouldn't be as favorable compared with renewables. And I think those would be the ways that we, you know, we don't pick favorites. Instead, we choose, hey, what sorts of behaviors do we want to encourage and discourage and then let the market sort it out and figure things out. Well, the new um, presidential administration is starting to have a lot of conversations about infrastructure and infrastructure spending as a way to propel an economy that's struggled through COVID. When you look at the energy infrastructure in this country, I know transmission is a conversation about things that need to be upgraded. Where do you see the needs on the infrastructure side? And where does nuclear fit into that? Because, you know, everything that I read about nuclear energy is very positive, and yet it has a wrap as like this dangerous source, and yet it might be the greatest renewable source in many ways. So if you can, talk a little bit about infrastructure, where you see needs kind of as a country, and then where uh, nuclear energy might fit into that. Yeah, so um, one of the big needs is transmission of energy from the places where it can be produced most effectively to where it is most needed and where it's going to be consumed. So you know, to really make a big play in renewables, you know, you need to be able to get that wind power from the plains of Oklahoma to population center of Atlanta, for example. And that requires uh, significant upgrades in the transmission infrastructure that can get that power to go to where it needs to go. So that would be one area for Is sure. it true that there's technology that could make transmission a lot more efficient than the older transmission lines that exist? Yeah, there are. And then also just, you know, just adding new capacity to existing rights of way and sometimes having to build new ones. And, you know, it's tough to get projects like those, you know, built in the United States today. I think another, you know, good example would be on the natural gas side. You know, we have areas like in North Dakota where gas is being uh, flared off because it's being produced as a byproduct with oil, but there's no natural gas pipeline to put that gas into. And so talk about, you know, economic waste and environmental disfortune. I mean, we should have a way to, you know, get that product to markets where it can be, you know, properly utilized. So I think that, you know, there's definitely 
both on the electricity side and the natural gas side, a need for a more robust transmission um, network. Um, as far as nuclear goes, um, nuclear is a very, um, you know, it's an emissions-free technology. Now, you still have issues around, you know, the waste and where you store it and whether you can, you know, treat it and, um, and do all the things and, and recycle it. Uh, we haven't really, you know, cracked that nut in the United States. However, you know, when you look at it from a, a, an ability to help you meet your carbon goals, you know, this is base load electricity that runs 24-7, 365, and can meet the, you know, base electricity needs of an entire, you know, society if it's uh, done right. Now, it is expensive. It has very high capital costs, but very up, low up operating costs. That's up right. So capital that, costs. The capital's high, and then running those plants is super cheap. So, but then what about amortized over time? I mean, nuclear power plants can last a really long time. You can, and and those that you know, if you can count on a you know sixty, eighty year you know useful life of that equipment, especially at these low interest rates that we have today in the world, um, nuclear can definitely, um, I think, serve an important need. Um, and there are a lot of folks that have really big climate aspirations. Bill Gates, for example, says that you know we are going to have to have nuclear be an important part of the equation if we really want to make progress on climate goals. It just cannot come from renewables alone. Nuclear has to play a part in that. And, uh, you know, I think he's got a very good point there. I think it needs to be part of the mix. I think the things he talks about are, are pretty amazing. When you, if you watch the show, I think it was on Netflix, Inside Bill's Brain, and there's one on on nuclear energy and all of his development around kind of a smaller capacity uh, nuclear generator that can be put in many different locations more easily than these massive nuclear power plants that we build. Yeah, absolutely. A more you know modular approach to those because these are very very big you know long construction period projects like Plant Vogel. It would be nice to complement projects like that with um, units that are smaller, that are, you know, a little more spread out and and lower cost overall. I think that those would be certainly a big piece of the mix as well. And we'll see if they come along. You know, it's it's tough. It's a, you know, it's a technology that we continue to have a lot of promise with, but also a lot of challenges. What are you hearing coming out of conversations in Washington around infrastructure that's needed in this space? You know, I don't hear a lot of talk about energy infrastructure, to be honest. I'm hearing more about, you know, transportation infrastructure. I'm hearing about, I'm hearing about renewables for sure. But I think there is a feeling that, well, you know, renewables will, you know, kind of be the big thing that will solve, you know, all of our, our problems. And again, I think that the investment in renewable energy is really important. Um, as I mentioned, Gas South's, you know, making some big investments in there. But I think we do need a little bit more of an all of the above, you know, strategy and really think about, hey, how can we continue to, you know, lower emissions overall, um, decarbonize um, our economy as much as possible, become more efficient uh, in our usage of energy, but do it using a variety of sources. And so I would like to, you know, see, you know, a balanced perspective on that where we really look at the, you know, the benefits of all of these different energy sources you know, balance that against the costs, the societal costs of of those, and come up with you know strategies that that make sense and get us you know on a trajectory towards lower emissions, higher efficiency, but you know also economic sustainability. A lot of this is federal, 
Is that right? I mean, the states, how much, how much role do the states play in energy conversations? Yeah, it depends. So interestingly, if you look at Georgia, mm-hmm. so Georgia does not have um, state incentives for renewable generation, for example. However, um, there has been a very big prioritization made by our Public Service Commission led by folks like um, Bubba McDonald and Tim Eccles for really encouraging the um, utilities in Georgia to invest in renewables and make it an important part of their overall energy mix. So um, I think our approach in Georgia has been, you know, more of that sort of vein. Then you've got some other, you know, states like, you know, California, where there are very large incentives and in fact mandates that are put on, you know, the utilities to develop a certain amount of renewable generation by a certain date and a certain period of time with penalties if they don't. So it really does range. And then of course the the federal government has on the overlay investment tax credits for certain types of renewable energy that uh, give those that invest in that type of technology a um, tax break on their federal taxes. So it is a bit of a hodgepodge. And uh, on the state side, you know, some states are have gotten way out there and have really pushed hard for um, renewable, sometimes at considerable cost. And then others have taken more of a market-based approach, which uh, I think that, uh, you know, I put Georgia in that category. Market-based, it, it makes me think of years ago, early 2000s, I looked at doing a, a, a huge solar farm, building a huge solar farm as a real estate development in Southern California in the desert. And I was working with Southern California Edison on that project. And one of the things that was such a difficulty about making that work from a investment standpoint was that Southern California Edison at the time would only pay, I think it was six cents a kilowatt or whatever, you know, but it was a sixth of what would be considered kind of the rate during the day, mm-hmm. like the peak rate. But they wouldn't pay you the peak rate for solar, even though you were generating the solar during mostly peak times, because it was just not their policy. So then you were getting the very least rate that they po- ever charged is what they would pay you. And so the project couldn't make sense at six cents, it would work all day long at 36 cents. Mm -hmm. The consumer was paying 36 cents or maybe more, right? At that peak pricing. And what I learned in that process was that in Europe, when they were trying to, you know, institute solar, they forced the power companies to buy the solar for the peak rate, which then allowed the capital that was building the solar plants to make sense out of that capital investment. Yep. How's that changed? I haven't been in the solar game or like even looked at it for almost 20 years. How, how what's going on in that in that regard today and is solar now being is it is it more of a European model or are we moving toward more of a European model or is it still in that place where the solar the, the, the buyers of the power are still paying the lowest rate? Yeah, so a lot of states have moved to more of that European model of um Moving from sort of an avoided cost methodology to something that's more like, um, you know, the, the consumer cost. You know, depending on your perspective, um, the right answer is probably someplace in the middle in terms of, you know, how generous you want to be. At the end of the day, you know, utilities are going to look at this and say, well, I can generate wholesale electricity from power plant for six cents. And then I've got all this infrastructure that takes it to that homeowner that causes me to ultimately charge them. 30 cents. But, you know, my apples to apples comparison is what I'm generating power for. Of course, 
as a you know developer of solar, you're saying, well, wait a second, you know, you're selling it for way more than that. I ought to get a higher price, um, and six cents is you know just not acceptable. So it becomes a bit of and 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 to your point, Ryan, too, you know, electricity that the price of electricity changes depending on the time of day, and it is much more expensive to generate electricity during times of peak demand, which typically are in the summer during the middle of the day, which, oh, by the way, is when solar actually is being produced. So, you know, getting to a, a, a place where utilities are paying a real-time price for that energy based on, you know, when it's being produced, which is, you know, going to be correlated, of course, with when it's most needed would make a lot of sense. And that's probably, you know, where we head as a society overall. And I think that ends up being fair to everybody. It's fair to the utility, which says, hey, I've got all this infrastructure that I'm using to distribute and transmit this electricity. But at the same time, it's fair to the solar developer who's getting a price really reflective of what the utility would otherwise have to pay for electricity. And if you you can price in some kind of incentive for the renewable energy characteristics, or if you had a you know carbon tax in the mix or something else, that further makes the renewable energy favored over the conventional sources. So there are things that we could do from a policy standpoint to really make it, you know, fair to everybody. Yeah, I've always wished that there was a way to allow the consumer to decide what type of energy they wanted to consume. And they so where the consumer could say, I only want to consume renewable energy and I'm willing to pay 40 cents mm-hmm. a kilowatt in order to not consume any energy that was made with coal or oil or whatever. I think that the truth would be you'd find everybody would rather consume the oil and coal energy for 10 cents, mm-hmm. right? But at least we would have that data and we'd be able to say to the American people, listen, you have a choice. You don't want to pay 40 cents a kilowatt. And I'm making up these numbers. I don't even know what the market is today, but let's just say 40 cents, right? You don't want to pay 40 cents. You have the opportunity. You can only consume solar power. You could only consume wind power. But you keep opting in for this 10 cent rate, which can only be created with coal and oil. And then say, all right, but the United States as a whole, we've decided that this is unsustainable. So now we're going to step in and we're going to demand for the good of the country, the good of the world, whatever. If we, you know, if we're, if we believe we're fighting global warming in doing this, then we're going to say, we're going to mandate X because people are too selfish, mm-hmm. right? So people are too selfish to pay the 40 cents on their own. So we're going to have to step in. At least then it would be an eyes wide open conversation. You know, what I feel like happens so often is people say, we should be on only solar, only wind, only renewables, but then they're not willing to really count the cost and pay the freight for that endeavor. And it's easy for them to sit back really in ignorance of how energy is generated, how much it costs to generate, how much it costs to transmit, how much it costs to build out all of this infrastructure and say, give me the low rate. Yeah. Do you think there's any hope of anything like that? Is that even possible where, you know, you could say to your consumer, you can, you know, like organic meats, mm-hmm. right? So think about the way organic meats emerged on the scene 20, 30 years ago. And today, how common it is that people are like, I only eat organic. Right. Yeah. Right. Only sustainably raised. Yep. Right. Can we do that with energy? Yeah, we can. And actually, we do. 
the interesting thing is that uh, you know many utilities, um, including Georgia Power, by the way, here in Georgia, will give you the option of buying renewable energy from them. And they'll say, hey, this is to pay for solar energy that we're investing in. And it does cost you know more. There's a premium for that. Um, what people say they will do in terms of you know with their willingness to pay versus what they actually demonstrate themselves willing to do in terms of how many sign up for those services, there's a huge, huge gulf. Uh, we've seen in our own surveys, you know, people will say, well, I'd pay more for the ability to offset my carbon emissions from the natural gas that I use from Gas South. And, you know, typically about 30%, 35% of our customers will say that I would voluntarily pay more. But then you offer that offering and, you know, you might get, you know, single digits in terms of the people who actually do it and uh, say that, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to voluntarily pay an extra six, eight dollars a month, whatever it is to have that knowledge that, you know, this money will go towards conservation projects or renewable energy that will, in essence, offset my own carbon emissions. It's tough to get them to take that next step. So I'm not a big fan of those voluntary programs. I think, you know, to your point that you made just before that, like, hey, let's decide as a society what sorts of behaviors we want to encourage, how much renewable energy do we want to have in the mix, and let's figure out a way to create an incentive for folks to um, invest in that level and then spread the costs of that, whatever they might be, across the uh, the population. To me, that's a more efficient way of getting at this. It might make us feel good that, oh, well, you know, we're only having those that, you know, are willing to pay, pay for it. But the reality is there aren't going to be enough people willing to do that to make a dent in uh, our energy mix. I agree with that. I, it's not that I think that the opting in is realistic. It's that I wish that the data from opting in or opting out was readily available such that when people were arguing XYZ about 100% renewables, that we could pull out the data and say, the problem is we rolled out programs to 50 million Americans and gave them the option to pay more for renewable energy. And they all wanted the cheap coal mm-hmm. in practice. In theory, they wanted it all to be renewables, but they wanted somebody else to pay for that. So that at least then we could put that in front of the American people and say, look, this is the truth of your practice. And now as the leaders of this country, we may say, we're not that's unsustainable, we're going to go in a different direction, but we're not going to live in the lie that somehow the American people are willing to voluntarily pay mm-hmm. for the more expensive renewable. I just mi- I miss some of that like real authentic self-reflection in these major economic conversations that are going on. When if you're behind the scenes at Gas South, you know that the practice of the consumer is to pay the least. Yep. Nope, that's right. And yet the dialogue that's happening in the country then is all about renewables where you're saying practically they don't want it, right? So in theory, they want it. In practice, they don't. But let's let's somehow get all that data on the table to where we're having an adult conversation about the sacrifices that are required yep. to yeah. have a have an energy grid that's filled with renewable energy. Yeah, I agree. And I think you know our customers want to know about and expect us to do things in the renewable energy space so that we can show our commitment to trying new technologies and investing in the future and that kind of thing. 
Where I have a problem with it is saying, okay, well, great, now I'm going to make you pay for it. And you're, you're going to pay, consumer, for all the good stuff that Gas South is doing. At the end of the day, that should really be on our shoulders. You know, we should be the ones making those investments and not then saying, well, um, we're willing to do it, but only if, you know, you, consumer, pay a lot more for it and uh, help me then ballyhoo my efforts as, uh, you know, and amplify my efforts, even though I'm not doing anything as a, as a company, I'm just taking your money and investing it in other things. I have, a, I have a bit of a problem with that philosophy. I would prefer that we do, you know, the right thing that we decide, hey, how much of our, you know, budget do we want to invest in some new technologies and get some experience with some new things and then talk about that with our, with our customers as opposed to asking some subset of our customers, pay for the good that I do. That doesn't feel good to me. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. What you, you mentioned the future. What are you most excited about, like kind of on the horizon in the energy space? What are you seeing? So I think that, uh, you know, in the gas business, there's a lot of interesting things happening with um, hydrogen. Natural gas infrastructure can be used to actually transport hydrogen. It can be mixed into natural gas, just like, say, ethanol gets mixed into gasoline. And the interesting thing is it's, a, it's actually can be mixed in at about the same percentage safely. It's about 15 to 20% before you have like, you know, issues of corrosivity or, you know, an inability to utilize, you know, hydrogen mixed into the natural gas supply in traditional appliances. So there is an opportunity for us to, you know, green up the um, natural gas industry through blending hydrogen into existing infrastructure. And the great thing about that, of course, is you already have the infrastructure available and out there. And hydrogen is very plentiful. Well, it, it, but it's hard to, it, it, it does cost a fair amount to produce it. It uh, requires a process called electrolysis, where you can use electricity to, in essence, produce hydrogen. And um, it has always had a lot of promise but um, whether we can actually get there at scale is a good question. I read something recently. It said that, you know, hydrogen's a fuel of the future and always will be. It's kind of a joke because everybody's <laughs> been talking about it for so long and it never quite gets to the, to the position where you're like, hey, you know, it's actually happening. You know, we've heard about fuel cells for a long time, but it does offer some promise and it certainly could be a big piece in, you know, how we repurpose or adjust, you know, natural gas infrastructure to also, you know, convey hydrogen. So I think that's an interesting opportunity in the future for us. If you blend in 15% hydrogen, it doesn't change the characteristic for the end user. Is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. But then natural gas doesn't have emissions to speak of, does it? Well, it does have carbon in it. So that's the difference is mm -hmm. that when you, when you combust, you know, natural gas, you are generating carbon emissions less than oil, less than coal, significantly less, but still Something. carbon emissions. And, and so hydrogen, hydrogen no. does not. So it's a, it. it's a carbon-free technology. So, and then the creation, the, 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 the searching for natural gas, the finding of natural gas is an endeavor that a lot of people don't love. They don't love the exploration of the earth, let's say. Hydrogen creation in that regard is a, is a much less controversial creation, even though it's very expensive. It is. is that... And especially if you use green energy, i.e. carbon-free electricity from solar or wind sources to produce that hydrogen. And that's what they call green hydrogen. And that has advantages. I think another area that we're excited about is um, renewable natural gas. And you're starting to hear a lot about that. You know, natural gas is basically methane. And methane, of course, is produced by agricultural waste, by landfills. And so 
there's a lot of interest in our industry to harness more of those um, other waste sources and in essence um, inject that gas into pipelines and to um, again blend you know conventional natural gas with renewable natural gas sources so we're um, excited about those opportunities we're definitely interested in looking at some projects associated with that um, poultry farms actually represent an interesting idea there where um, and, and other agricultural sources where is there an opportunity to harness what um, you know the waste that those guys have to in essence convert it into a gas and to be able to blend that into the natural gas system uh, and beneficially use it so that's an area that we're interested in and then I think the other big thing for the gas industry in general is trying to deal with fugitive emissions. So trying to reduce leaks and um, uh, instances of flaring off natural gas and other uneconomical and uh, you know activities that create emissions that uh, are greenhouse gas emissions that uh, you know contribute to uh, climate change. And so we need to, as an industry, figure out ways that we can really tighten up the system, reduce the amount of um, natural gas that is leaking into the atmosphere during the production, the transmission, and the distribution processes. And uh, that would go a long ways towards, you know, making our industry seem the more favorable light as well. We don't really have activity in each of those areas of the value chain, but we're definitely keenly interested uh, in those that are, you know, doing the producing and the transmission and the distribution to ensure that, uh, you know, the systems are tightened up. So automobiles and natural gas, the, the question I have is in California years ago, they had a program where if you bought an electric vehicle, you could drive in the carpool lane for a year. But if you bought a vehicle that ran on natural gas, you could drive in the carpool lane for five years. Hmm. What's going on with automobiles and natural gas? Yeah. So uh, I think electric has pretty much overtaken natural gas. Um I think that the advances in electric technology, that that game is over. And um, while there was a thought you know, years ago that natural gas could actually compete with EVs, that's not going to happen. Um, I think that natural gas can compete with larger forms of transportation. So when you look at um, trucks and you look at delivery vans, um, in many ways, your natural gas can be a better fuel than electricity for those applications. And uh, sometimes you can get a better range, sometimes you can get better hauling capacity and things like that. But as far as passenger vehicles go, I think that one is, uh, that one's been won by EVs and rightfully so. I mean, that technology has advanced so quickly. The range has gotten so much better. You've had so much innovation and it just kind of left natural gas vehicles behind on the passenger side. You said you've owned EVs for what, a decade plus? Yeah, yeah, about a decade now. What's been the evolution? What was your first EV? So the first one was the the Nissan Leaf that had like a 70-mile range, you know? Did you buy uh, it when they had the great incentives? The yes. Great, I yep. mean, they were almost giving them away yeah, back in the day. Oh, it was an incredible deal. I mean, you'd buy it on two, three-year lease, and you'd get a $5,000 Georgia tax credit. It was, it was a bit much, yeah. to be honest. And, um, you know, they discontinued that. And unfortunately, now there's no incentive for EVs at all at the state level. There is still one, of course, at the federal level, but um, at the state level, you know, it's disappeared and really the advantage that you had has is gone for that. But the advantage that isn't gone is that it's just a high performing vehicle. So I, I leased one Leaf, then I leased another Leaf, and then I bought a Chevy Bolt and that's what I'm driving today. Chevy so, Volt. Yeah, Bolt. With Bolt, a B. B-O-L-T. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's all electric. Got it. Is there a Volt? So, there was. But was it, it was electric? Uh, it was half, half electric, half um, gasoline. It was, uh, it was a hybrid vehicle. 
Got it. And so the bolt is pure electric. Yep, that's right. Um, in Georgia, there's a Kia Motors plant. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, of uh, car manufacturing in the South. Is there an electric vehicle manufacturing plant in the South? Like, is there an electric vehicle that we could buy as Southerners that was yeah, made in the so, South? So the Nissan Leaf is actually produced in Tennessee. And then Volkswagen is going to be producing their new um, sedan, their electric sedan in Tennessee as well. In Chattanooga? Yep. Uh, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's Chattanooga or Nashville. Um, it's, uh, it, I'm not sure exactly where. They have that where. huge plant in Chattanooga yeah. already, but maybe That's probably the one. one. The Volkswagen's probably there. And I think the Nissan one was up in the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but I, I don't think there's anything yet in Georgia. There was an announcement of a big new battery plant that was supposed to be built that was going to supply Kia, but they got in trouble with, um, some um, potential infringement issues on patents with one of their competitors. And so, as I understand it, that project is a little bit in limbo. But, um, you know, Kia obviously is a big producer of vehicles in the state of Georgia, and they do have some electric offerings. Whether or not they'll produce those down in um, West Point, Georgia or not, we'll have to see. So battery, you mentioned batteries. I've been told that battery production is very environmentally unfriendly. Is that true? Or is that an urban legend? I mean, what's going on with lithium and lithium mining and creation of batteries around electricity? Yeah, I think there are some issues both with the production of batteries and the disposal of them. Um, I'm not that aware of um, you know how bad it is for the environment. What I do know is that most of that activity is happening over in China. That's where most of the rare earth minerals and uh, exist. And so, you know, I, I can't imagine that. Um, you know, it's great for the environment, but uh, I don't know uh, just how, how bad that process is. I know that there are questions about, hey, you know, from a disposal standpoint, what do we do with this stuff? And can we beneficially recycle batteries? I know there's a lot of work going on in that space. So hopefully we'll figure that out as some of these vehicles start to, you know, reach their the end of their useful lives. Maybe we could bury all the lithium in a mountain in Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there is an old nuclear repository just <laughs> waiting for something, right? Waiting for something. Uh, so um, this is more of a, a, a personal question, which is, how, how long have you been in Atlanta? Uh, about 20 years now. Uh, and with Gas South for about 15 of those. Where did you come from before Atlanta? So I'm one of those damn Yankees that never left. I grew up in the New York area. I lived in Houston for a while. I moved over to Germany. I actually worked for Enron. You remember them, Ryan? I do. The old, uh, I you and I are well. old enough to uh, to remember Enron. It's funny, mm-hmm. a lot of our millennial or even more Gen Z uh, employees at Gas South are like, Enron, never heard of it. you know. Yeah. But it was a big... Um, energy company that Jeff uh, Skilling and yeah huge flame out huge what was fraud Ken, what was it the main Ken Lay Ken Lay yep so I worked stories. for them for about three and a half years out of business school two years in um, Houston uh, almost two years in Germany as well and uh, really learned a ton and uh, got a great introduction to the energy industry you know Enron was a very innovative company um, in some ways too innovative sometimes you can be too innovative right because you go in too many directions at the same time and you can't manage you know effectively what you're doing and i think there was a piece of that with enron and then the other big problem with enron that a, a friend of mine once um told me he said you know kevin the, the real problem with enron is nobody ever gets rewarded for killing a bad deal and anytime that a company kind of moves into that direction where it's all about the deal and the salespeople are the ones that get all the accolades and anybody in risk management is told you know what just go along with it and you know don't be a don't be a 
you know, a bummer, you know, a Debbie Downer here. You need Debbie Downers in any company to tell you, you know what, that does not make sense, Ryan. We should not do that. And I really appreciate the people at Gas South that, um, you know, do that for me. And um, I think that, uh, you know, Enron suffered from that sort of um, behavior never being rewarded. The people who were, you know, say, you know, let's not do this. It does not make sense. Well, Enron was doing all sorts of innovative things with pipelines and, and energy creation and, you know, very traditional kind of energy decisions. But where they got in most of their trouble was uh, paper bets. Yeah. And, and things like broadband trading, which, you know, was uh, arguably, you know, in some respects before its time and in some respects probably never was going to have its time. But uh, it got into all sorts of things. And then the trading side absolutely was, um, you know, there were some very profitable things that were done. But um, the company also really bent the rules when it came to accounting. You know, they would do something like, like in your business, if you signed up a um, film production company for five years of a lease, you know, Enron would immediately mark all five years to its income and not worry about the cost. The cost would then be incurred over time, but they would basically book all of that income right away and present that to Wall Street as if that were like, you know, ongoing earnings when, you know, it wasn't. It was going to be really realized over a long period of time. And oh, by the way, there are also costs that we're going to have over time, but those were never, you know, disclosed in a transparent way at Enron. So there was a lot of, you know, accounting shenanigans that really made the books look better than they actually were. Yeah, I was going to say, it makes your growth look a lot more effective. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's not sustainable. No. Because the next year you can't do that same deal necessarily. Exactly, yep. Now, the difference is, is that Enron was leveraging other people's assets a lot of the times and or trading derivatives off of other people's assets. So the difference being, if I lease my stages... My stages are full for five years. I can't mm -hmm. lease them to anybody else. Whereas if I'm doing derivatives off my stages and making trades off the leasing values of my stages, then I theoretically have an infinite number of stages. Yeah. Because now I'm making bets about the lease value of my stages. So that's where they can get in trouble is that they forget that the derivatives were based on something. Mm -hmm. And that something actually had limitations that were physical limitations. Yeah. Whereas when you get into all the derivatives, there's no physical limitations. And that's why it's so easy to get over leveraged. And yeah. And that was the reason that, you know, Enron could show like a revenue of a hundred billion dollars. And it was basically selling and buying the same molecules of natural gas and the same electrons of electricity over and over and over and over again. But there wasn't actually any real economic activity going on there. But it looked like, wow, this company is exploding in terms of growth. How amazing. And it's like, you know, there was definitely, Emperor had no clothes in many respects. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a fascinating time. It was like they, they were the first guys to discover derivatives on scale in energy trading. But okay. So then you left Enron, you came to Atlanta? Came to Atlanta to take a job with Southern Company, actually. And I worked at a couple of different divisions, including the old Southern Company Gas, which was sold in uh, 2006. And then I left with the sale with about 40 other employees and started Gas South. And from there, it's just been you know quite a ride. And today, we've got 400 employees, so we've grown about 10x. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. A great it's, run. It's a good, it's a, it's a fun thing to look back and think about, my gosh, we had like this small little team. We were serving like 150,000 customers. Today, we're up well over 400,000. And you know, we're in all these different markets and we're doing wholesale trading and everything too. It's, it's been a big transformation. Fortunately, I had some very 
um, experienced people who were willing to make the jump with me because I was not prepared to be CEO. I was 37 years old. I was as shocked as anybody to be asked to do it. I was like, wait, you're talking to me? It's like, I, I can't run a company. But um, I had folks who had a lot more experience than I had and were willing to make that jump as well. And then, you know, you learn on the job and you figure some things out. And I'm still figuring things out. But uh, I would say that the last 10 years have been a lot easier than the first five for a whole host of reasons. But one of them is just growing into the role. So the, the, the point of this question is really that, you know, I'm a transplant to Atlanta. I know lots of transplants to Atlanta. We have listeners to this podcast all over the world. I mean, literally every continent, people listen to this podcast. Tell people what you love about Atlanta. You've lived all over the place. So Atlanta is the best small town, big city that you'll find. You know, it like, you know, people get to know each other here. The business community, the civic community are so, it's so tight. You know, you and I, you know, met years ago, involved with, uh, you know, various civic activities, you know, economic development activities right here in DeKalb County, you know. So that to me makes Atlanta totally different from any place else that I've ever lived. And I understand that's a very common sentiment among other folks, that it's just like you're in this big city, but you also feel like you're in a small town. And I think the other thing that makes Atlanta special is that if you think about what makes a place great to live in. There's a whole host of things. It's like, you know, nature and culture and cost of living. And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on, you know, um, um, your quality of life, you know, all of those things. And Atlanta, I think, grades out well on just about everything. It's never the top, you know, it's not like, you know, culture. Okay, well, you know, you're going to, New York's going to be better than that. Cost of living. We're not the cheapest place to live. Um, But we're a lot cheaper than New York. We are a lot cheaper than New York, right? The New Yorkers um, and the Californians. You got a New Yorker sitting here, you got a California sitting here, and we think everything in Atlanta is free. Right. Exactly. You know, and it's like so the the lifestyle is really, really good. There's a lot to do here. It's a beautiful place. The weather's terrific. Not the best. You know, you always find someplace else that has better weather than Atlanta, but it's pretty good. So when you look at it on a portfolio basis, we're kind of in the upper tier on everything on that everything. makes it that it makes a place a nice place to live. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, we're out of time. If people want to find you on social media or wherever you'd want them to find you, where would that be? So LinkedIn is probably the best place for me. I'm also on Twitter, um, Kevin underscore Gas South, but uh, I'm less active on Twitter than I probably am on LinkedIn. So I that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so I I like to, uh, but I, I love to engage. And then you know, visit us at GasSouth.com. Uh, one of the things that makes Gas South a really special company is we say that. Uh, you know, we want to be a fuel for good, and that's uh, caring for our customers and our employees and elevating our industry and our communities. And so we're very active out in the community. We give back 5% of our profits to children in need. That's been a pledge that we've had for five years now. And, um, you know, being really a part of the community is really, really important to us at Gas South. And I look forward to connecting with uh, lots of your listeners. Well, I've observed your um, willingness to give to the community. So I can attest to how valuable that is to all of us that are part of that community. Absolutely. Thanks again for being on the program. This has been outstanding. Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Great to see you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, and follow us on Instagram at Blackhall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.